You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Mark 1.35 In the morning, while it was still very dark, Jesus got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Luke 3.21 Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were. Luke 5.16 Meanwhile, Jesus would slip away to deserted places and pray. Luke 6.12 Now, during those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. Luke 9.18 Once, when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked, Who do the crowds say that I am? Luke 9.28-29 Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Matthew 14, 23. And after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Matthew 19, 13. The children were being brought to Jesus in order that he might lay his hands on them and pray. John eleven forty one. And Jesus looked upward and prayed. Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like me, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Matthew 26, 26, while they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after praying a blessing, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. Matthew 26, 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Luke 23, 34, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 46, then Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, prayed, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Luke 24, 50, following Jesus' resurrection, Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them in prayer. Anyone noticing a trend here? <laughs> Jesus prayed a lot, all the time. You can't read the biographies of Jesus that we have in our New Testament without coming to the startling realization that prayer was foundational to everything he did. It was a part of his daily rhythm, and he made time for it even when life felt too busy, which, when he was doing Messiah stuff, was often. He's praying, he's teaching, he's healing, but he's also making sure that he carves out time for connection to God all the time. And I think it's worth noting here that he didn't just pray as some tired religious ritual. He saw prayer as the ignition that would spark the rest of his life. It was a way of connecting to the very source of life and love. Prayer for Jesus was joyful. It was refreshing. It was relieving. It was restful. It was honest and open and real. And if you fast forward to us today, those of us that would call ourselves Jesus followers, our experience of prayer doesn't often look or sound a lot like Jesus's. If we're being honest, if we took a poll here today, we're not going to take a poll, but if we took a poll, I'm not sure many of us in this room would say, you know, my prayer life, I'm just killing it. I am slaying my prayer life. Not, not many of us really think that way about our prayer. Prayer's hard for us. It doesn't feel joyful or refreshing. Oftentimes, in our day, prayer feels boring. It feels unproductive. And that's especially true when our smartphones are within reach, or there's another episode of The Office to stream, or there's just another obligation that we need to get to. We are often too distracted and hurried to meaningfully engage in prayer on a regular basis. And that's because we live in a culture where every square inch of our lives is trying to be colonized by something or someone else. There are, right now, huge multinational corporations that are listening to us through our devices, and 
they're spending billions of dollars with two goals in mind, to distract us and addict us. That's what they're trying to do for all of us in this room. They're infringing on every square inch of our lives. There's a, a tech executive named Joseph, Justin Rosenstein, who was interviewed by The Guardian about this recently. Justin's the guy uh, who invented the like button for Facebook. So like a major, major influence in this area. And he, alongside many other Silicon Valley executives, are calling our current world an arms race for our attention. Justin goes on to say that the likes on all of our social media accounts are bright dings of pseudo-pleasure, and he compares Snapchat to heroin. The drug. <laughs> There's an author named Ronald Rawheiser who puts it this way in his book, The Holy Longing. He says, we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God or depth or spirit. We'd like these. It's just that we're too habitually preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater. Oof, that convinced me. The movie theater? The sports stadium, NFL playoffs right now, and the shopping mall and the fantasy life and all the things that they produce in us than we are in church or prayer. Pathological busyness, distraction, restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Friends, every time we pray, we are facing down a mountain of distraction and dopamine addiction that is tugging at us. That's why prayer feels too boring. That's why it seems impossible with all of the activity, all of the hurry, all of the rush of our lives. And then, even if we're able to overcome those hurdles and actually start to pray, when we finally get there, it feels kind of awkward for many of us. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. We've heard other people pray, and so maybe we borrow some words from them, and we kind of throw them up, seeing what might work, and none of it really connects. Maybe we spend time in prayer, and we start to do the question asking in the midst of it. You ever done that? Like deconstruct what you're doing while you're doing it? Why? Why am I praying? Am I praying to let God know about things? Doesn't he already know everything? Am I praying to God to give me something? Doesn't he already have a plan for my life? Why, why do I need to pray? And eventually, the awkwardness of our phrases and our cynical questions, they can make us give up altogether on prayer. I've had numerous conversations with people over the last couple years who have said, well, I prayed for something and it didn't work, so I just stopped praying. Or I stopped praying for that thing. And in my head, I think... Okay, so prayer in some form to you is like a vending machine. You're putting in quarters, you're punching in the numbers, and you're hoping that Doritos fall out for you. And if the Doritos get stuck, then you maybe hit the side of it, and then you give up. Or you stop eating Doritos, one of those two, right? You, you just kind of give up on the process. You guys, I don't think that the challenges that we experience in prayer are the fault of prayer itself. I think we've misunderstood what prayer is. Our prayer life is distracted or hurried or awkward or lifeless because our idea of prayer is too small. It's not big enough. It's not robust enough. We've reduced a relationship down to a transaction in most of our lives. A way of illustrating this. I love my wife, and my wife loves me. And because we love each other, we talk and listen to one another all the time. We talk and listen about what happened in our days, even though oftentimes we already kind of know what happened in our days. We update one another, and then we unpack that together. We talk and listen about how we're feeling, even when sometimes we can already tell what the other person is feeling. Sometimes we ask each other for things, and sometimes we say no, and sometimes we say yes, but we still ask one another. 
We set up specific times in the week to go to our favorite restaurant or our favorite dessert spot and literally just sit and talk and listen. That's what a date night is. You just sit and talk and listen. You guys, I talk so much to my wife that I'm not joking you, I've lulled her to sleep with my talking before. We've been laying in bed and I'm droning on and on and she's had a long day and next thing I know, she is snoring. And we don't just talk and listen either. Sometimes we just sit in silence together. Sometimes we just laugh or cry. Sometimes we have fun together. We see a movie or we play a game or we ride our bikes or walk the dog because that's what a relationship is. A relationship emphasizes practices or habits that get us close to another person. Now imagine, if my relationship with Emily consisted only ever of me asking her to do things for me. Imagine if I only ever talked to Emily about the stuff that I was frustrated with or don't have. Imagine if I never listened to Emily and only ever talked to her. Those would be signs of a terrible and lifeless marriage. And they're signs of terrible and lifeless prayer. Because prayer is a relationship. That's Jesus' vision of prayer. It's so much bigger, so much more robust than a transaction. He sees this as the practice that gets us close to the very source of life and love. It's the means by which we experience and connect with God. And so if the whole life and ministry of Jesus revolved around this practice and we have so much trouble with it, it should probably make us start to ask some questions. We should probably ask ourselves, how can we begin to restore our prayer lives? How do we pray? And thankfully, we're not the first people to ask that question throughout history. In fact, the disciples of Jesus, who were right next to him, asked him the same question in the Gospel of Luke. They literally say, Lord, teach us to pray. And here's a fascinating note on that. The disciples rarely ask Jesus to explicitly teach them to do a whole lot of other things. They never, for instance, ask him to teach them how to perform miracles. Never happens. They never ask him to teach them how to teach or to preach but they ask him to teach him how to pray. It's as if they might have had a similar problem to us. It's as if they might have needed guidance, like we do. And Jesus responded by giving them a template. We actually get two versions of this template in the scriptures, the shorter one in Luke and the longer one in Matthew. And today, we refer to, we refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. So we just prayed collectively together. And this is actually designed as a structure or as a template that we are to customize now, the Lord's Prayer is not an incantation. It's not nice magic words that we pray to God to get him to hear us. It's actually a way of orienting us towards God and then allowing us to kind of customize the template. And when we dig into the structure that Jesus gives us, it actually opens us up to a much bigger, much more transformative picture of prayer than the one that we often have. We learn in this structure four things about prayer. We learn that it orients us, that it involves us, that it sustains us, and that it transforms us. Prayer orients, involves, sustains, and transforms. So let's dig into this, friends. Uh, in our second installment in this series, we're calling The Transformed Life. We're going to unpack Jesus' template for prayer. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to read the longer version together today. Matthew is the first book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 7. If you don't have a Bible or an app, that's okay. The words are going to be behind me on the screen. You can follow along with us there. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 7. This is Jesus speaking. When you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father 
knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Prayer orients us. So the first three lines of this template show us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus opens this prayer by calling God Father. And the importance of that choice that Jesus makes can't be overstated. See, we often overlook it because we pray this prayer every week and we miss what Jesus is doing. Jesus had many choices when he wanted to refer to God. A bunch of different names in his culture that he could have chosen. He could have chosen, for instance, the name Yahweh. That's the name that God provided in the Old Testament. That's the name of a specific family at a specific time in the nation of Israel. But he doesn't use that name. He could have chosen the Lord. In Judaism, at Jesus' time, the Lord was the title of this God. It was a way of referring to God without making him too intimate because, because God is much bigger, much far beyond our world, something that we should never really be able to approach or pronounce on our lips. God is distant and out there, and we need to be very reverent, so reverent that we can't refer to him by a name at all. We can only refer to him by a title. But that's not what Jesus does. He could have chosen Zeus or Jupiter, Those were the gods of the culture around him, the gods of empire, the gods of power and politics, the gods who would make Rome great again. But he didn't choose those names either. He chose Father. It was Jesus' favorite word to describe God. He uses it over and over and over in the New Testament. When describing the God of the universe, the one who formed all things and rules all things, he uses a radically intimate image. Most scholars think in Aramaic he's using the term Abba, which is the most intimate way to refer to your dad. It's an image of love and affection. He's saying that God is Papa. God is Dad. It's an image of strength and care. It's an image of a God who takes profound joy in time with his kids, whose entire being is oriented towards caring for and loving. There's a pastor friend of mine named Luke Parker who says that this is the God of bad jokes and barbecues, the God of skinned knees and sage wisdom. And I know that when we use that phrase, we need to also add a disclaimer because many of us carry into this room not the best pictures of fathers. We have father wounds. This is common in this room. This is common in our world around us. And so when we hear that God is a father, we think, well, great. I don't want any part of that because I know what a dad is like. I've had one. And if that's you or if that's someone you know, one, we get it. We're here to walk with you through that. Using this language is going to take some emotional sifting, and that's okay. We're here for it. But know that when Jesus uses this language, he's talking about a father that transcends all of our poor examples. This is a father that actually can redeem those examples. Those gaps that exist in the ideal father and our own experiences of fathers, Jesus bridges those gaps. He fills the need that we all have for a loving, caring, protective father. He's telling us that our true father has the power to heal and redeem all those broken versions that we've had. And so we actually have a unique ability. When we have father wounds, we have a unique ability to understand the powerful, redemptive nature of our heavenly father. And here's why this image is so important, guys. Because the image of God that we hold in here and in here will always make or break our spiritual journeys. Always. 
we are oriented by images. And the image of God that we hold in our imagination will dictate our prayer life and our spiritual life. For instance, if our image of God is some distant sky fairy who will only listen if we say the right things in the right ways at the right times, then prayer can only ever be a vending machine and eventually we'll give up because we don't get the Doritos we're looking for. If our image of God is an angry old man in the sky who's tapping his foot and waiting for us to come back to him, then we'll only ever be able to approach him with shame. We'll only ever be able to approach him uh, with uh, insecurity on our part. We'll feel like we don't belong there. So prayer will be impossible for us. Healthy, good prayer. If our image of God is an impersonal force that's just kind of out there in the world, then prayer will only ever consist of an ambiguous, impersonal request that's disconnected from the -the on-the-ground reality of our lives. But if God is our Father, if God loves us, if God cares for us, it changes the whole game. And I'm not a father, but I know many fathers, many of them in this room. And when I've seen those fathers walk home, you see what the picture of a loving father looks like. They're often greeted with a joyful daddy as soon as they walk in the door. Their kids sprint to them and run headfirst right into their kneecaps. If they're a little bit older, sometimes maybe a more vulnerable spot. But <laughs> dads know what I'm talking about. Why? Why do their kids do this? Because they know the love of their dad. They know that their dad cherishes them, and their dad is safe and strong and wise and caring. And they just want to be with their dad. Even when some of that behavior changes as kids get older, the love of their dad is always there to prompt them to return. That's an important part of these foundational years. They know that their dad cares for them, and that even as they get older and more independent, they can always come back. You guys, Jesus is telling us that prayer is orienting us towards this essential truth. That God is crazy about all of us. That God cherishes all of us. That you, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you are God's beloved. But that's not the only way that we're oriented in this prayer. We're also oriented by the fact that this Father is in heaven. And when most of us hear that phrase, our mind is filled with kind of stereotyped visions of heaven. We think of pearly gates and pure white clouds and naked babies flying around everywhere. That's usually our picture of prayer. People didn't like the naked babies joke. They didn't think that was okay. It's weird. But there, those, there's images that exist. It's weird. We have that picture of heaven. We think of it as some far off and distant place. But that's not how the biblical imagination sees heaven. The notion of heaven or the heavens in the scriptures is referring to God's space that pervades and surrounds and gives life to our space. It overlaps. It's not distant. The word being used here contextually literally just means air or skies. Rather than the heaven being distant or far away, it's as close to us as the air we breathe. It's as close to us as our very breath. And the Bible is all about heaven and earth being intimately connected, heaven and earth overlapping. It's about God's space and human space working together to bring flourishing to all things. So when we pray, our Father in heaven, we're praying to a loving dad whose presence is intimately close to us, closer than our very breath constantly surrounding us and filling us and giving us life, we pray to a God whose presence we can experience and whose character we know. That's our Father in the heavens, in the air around us. And it leads to the next orienting line of the prayer, hallowed be your name. And hallowed isn't a word that we use very often, maybe like once a year, Halloween, right? 
really the only time in our culture, but the word is actually pretty simple. It just means holy. It's a fancier way of saying holy. And when we think of holiness, we think of moral aptitude, right? Great, esteemed moral piety. And that is, in some respects, what holiness means. But the idea more broadly in the Bible literally just means to be set apart or distinct from other things. To be set apart or distinct from other things. That's what it means to be hallowed or holy. And notice in this prayer, what are we praying would be hallowed? Remember? Hallowed be your name. The name of God is what we pray to be hallowed. And names in the ancient world, very different than they are for us today. They weren't just like something you Google and say, oh, I kind of like how that one sounds. We'll go with that. Names had real meaning. Names were ways of identifying who people were. It was a way of talking about their characteristics, their destiny, their purpose. And so to pray, hallowed be your name, is to pray for God's identity, God's characteristics to be set apart, to be clear and distinct in the world. It's a way of seeking that God would not be conflated with or associated with or diluted by the wrong things. That God's name would always be esteemed and not uh, dragged down in the mud by other things. A good way of exemplifying this. Any Lord of the Rings fans in the room? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, we got a couple. Lord of the Rings fans, will always, you'll always know a Lord of the Rings fan. They don't, you don't have to wonder. They'll tell you. And they're from books, those of you that, that remember the classic Tolkien novels that are fatter than our Bibles. They're great books. They're just big. Uh, they also made movies. Exquisite works of art. Amazing movies. Some of the most highly acclaimed films in Hollywood history. The practical effects are amazing. It's got great writings and performances and themes. Those movies esteem, hallow, the name of Middle-earth, the world that Tolkien created. They do a great job of esteeming those things. And then they made three other movies that will remain nameless. Lord of the Rings fans know what I'm talking about. They're kind of CGI messes and very clearly just money grabs. That was the goal for those movies. Let me get as much money as I can from this franchise. And many Lord of the Rings fans say, you know, that kind of tarnishes the series. And you don't really need those. Just, just watch the first three. That tarnishes the name of Lord of the Rings. It hurts its reputation. They defile the name. Our prayer is that God's name and reputation would be represented rightly in the world and not conflated with the wrong things, not conflated with money grabs, not conflated with ugly things. And we know when those ugly things do get conflated with God's name. Many of us have experienced them in our culture. When God's name gets muddled in with politics, it leads to the defiling of his character, his kingdom of grace and love. It gets overwhelmed by a worldly ideology and often used to oppress or squelch others. When God's name gets muddled in with consumerism, it leads to the defiling of his character. His self-sacrificial message and character get undermined by people who are just looking to get things from God or looking for an amazing experience in a worship service or sometimes worse. Prayer is orienting us towards the experience and embodiment of God's name, his character in the world, that it would be fully holy and hallowed and not defiled by anything else. And that character is something that we get relayed to us all over the scriptures, the character of God. One of the most concise and articulate ways of expressing God's character is in the New Testament, the fruit of the Spirit. Any of you guys familiar with this? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. When we pray, we are tapping into the Spirit of God that is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. 
And we are getting close to those characteristics, letting them shape us, and then praying that those characteristics would be made known and manifest in the world around us. Prayer is first and foremost a way of entering into God's presence and allowing a true vision of him to shape us and transform us. As the great Saint Julian of Norwich put it, the whole reason why we pray is to be united into the vision and contemplation of the God to whom we pray. And so to pray, these opening words, friends, is to pray something like this. Father, Dad, Papa, I want to remember your unending and profound love for me, for all people, and for all things. I want to be united with that love as the emotional and spiritual center of my life. And I want to remember that love as always near to me, always around me, always shaping me, and I want to see that love proclaimed to the world in every way. We're way beyond a vending machine, right? Way, way beyond a vending machine. We're talking about real orientation towards the source of life. But this prayer template isn't just orienting. It's also involving us. The next part of this template that Jesus gives is, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And don't just breeze by those things. Praying those words is a way that we sign up for the revolution. Praying those words is a way that we sign up for the revolution of God. Remember last week, we talked about the huge story of God, that he's bringing redemption and restoration to all things. That forgiveness and life and peace and flourishing are coming to all things. And so whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer, we remember that our faith is never escapist. Christians don't bury their heads in the sand and wait around for God. They live their lives committed to the coming kingdom in the real, tangible, tactile world that they live in. And that is radical, friends. Jesus is telling each of us that our prayer has the power to actually change reality. Our prayer has the power to bend reality towards the redemption and restoration of God. And most of us, if we're honest, don't believe that. Most of us, if we're honest, live fatalistic lives. We think that God's going to do whatever God's going to do and whatever I think or pray or do doesn't really matter. And Jesus rebukes that notion right here. He's telling all of us that our prayer is the method that we can use to partner with the Spirit of God. Prayer has the power to change the world, to move the hand of God. And if you really read the Bible, you'll know that that's the only way that God has ever worked. If you really read these texts from the opening pages, God assumes humans to be his partners, not his puppets. From the get-go, he's always working alongside and through and in human structures and relationship and, yes, prayers. This is who God has always been. And so if our picture of God in prayer is that he's not really listening or that he's indifferent to us and will do whatever he wants anyway, then we're not praying to the God of the Bible. We're praying to some other God that we have invented, but that's not the God in these pages, and that's not the God that Jesus points to. It's not the God that Jesus reveals to us. So friends, prayer isn't just orienting for us. It's involving. It gets us in on God's work in the world. And you'll find that the people who pray this the most, who pray this prayer and customize it the most in their lives, somehow always have God's presence around them. It's like God actually shows up and is near to them all the time. Forgiveness follows them, and peace follows them, and grace follows them wherever they go. It's as if their prayer is changing reality. So prayer is orienting. It's involving. It's also sustaining. After uh, we've been oriented and involved in the work of God, Jesus shifts the focus of the language. 
Notice the first few lines are all focused on God, and the last few lines are all focused on us. Last three lines are about us bringing ourselves, our lives and our experience to God. And that's a critical point, you guys. God certainly calls us to be oriented towards him, but he also gives us real freedom to approach him with all of our experience and desires. He's not an uninvolved and far-off ruler. He cares about even the smallest of details in our lives, down even to the bread that we will eat to get through our days. This is our loving Father, intimately aware of our needs and caring for us, creating a space for us to voice our needs and wants to him. There's three phrases that Jesus gives us to guide our self-focus in prayer. It comes after our focus on God, after we're oriented and involved, and then we talk about ourselves. He says, give us this day our daily bread. He's just reminding us that we're dependent creatures. We need to remember that all the time, that we are dependent on things beyond ourselves. We cannot bring life to us on our own. It's impossible. We are dependent on God's physical and spiritual nourishment. He is the one who brings us life. And that, by the way, doesn't mean that God just provides the bread itself. Bread, to get to you, requires a whole bunch of other things. It requires money and work and labor and government and business and ecological realities like the rain we saw today. So to pray for our daily bread is to pray for all of the structures of the world to work together harmoniously so that we can have the nourishment we need. And here's another important truth about this. For many of us sitting in this room, we don't have to worry about our daily bread very much. We just don't. We live in the wealthiest time and the wealthiest nation in world history. But notice, the prayer doesn't use the personal pronoun, my. It's not give me my bread. What's it say? Give us our bread. Every time we use this phrase, we are remembering that we are intimately connected to every person around us. So we thank God for giving us our daily bread, but we also think about the ones who don't have it. And we remember that oftentimes we have more bread than we need, and we are called to give that bread away to our neighbors. That all people might experience the nourishment of God in their lives. It should immediately make us grateful, and then immediately make us loving to our neighbors. To give our things away so that they can be sustained. Jesus continues, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Again, just an important reminder to us that none of us is a finished product. None of us in this room. None of us outside this room, either. We're full of all sorts of messiness and corruption. All of us, in our own way, have harmed the image of God in ourselves and others. And that means we need forgiveness from that God. It's the nature of the scriptures. That's what Jesus came to bring. And Jesus promises us that we have that forgiveness, always. It's important to remember when we pray these words, because sometimes... I know it in my own life, and I know it in many lives around me, that we feel like when we pray for forgiveness again and again and again, eventually God gets tired of it. Eventually God will say, well, you know what? This is the like 742nd time that you've prayed for this thing, and I can't extend forgiveness that far. Eventually we think it's going to run out. Jesus promises us that that's never the case, friends. That God is always faithful to forgive whenever we are faithful to confess our sins. The grace of God never runs out, and so we can approach God with full honesty, full humility, and full confidence in his character to forgive, because that's what he longs to do. It's literally why he came to earth. There is no habit, no action, no thought, no history of your life that you can present to God that is beyond his forgiveness. The only thing required of us is to turn to God and our brokenness, and God takes care of the rest. And it's remarkable that when we do this with regularity, it actually does start to change us. We realize the extent to which we've been forgiven. That's a weird thing about maturity and growth. 
the more you grow, the more you realize you have way more to grow in. It opens you up to how much growth you still have left. And it also opens you up to people around you in new ways. You become someone who forgives others their debts to you. And that's because you see in your forgiveness the need for forgiveness for all people. We see ourselves in our neighbors. When we experience the forgiveness of God, we see the forgiveness of our neighbors and extend that forgiveness to others. We're not people who uh, see our neighbors as someone who owes us, someone that we can lord things over. We see them just as broken as we are. The process of receiving forgiveness allows us to extend it to the world and break the powers of ownership, of vitriol, of vengeance, of anger in the world. And then finally, we hear, do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is actually the closing lines of Jesus' prayer. Notice that last bit that we often pray together, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's actually not here originally. And I think that's worth noting. Jesus ends the prayer with a reminder that we go into a world that is constantly looking to pull us back into darkness and brokenness. All the time. Every day, we are faced with opportunities to reject God, to harm others or neglect others, and to well, forget about creation. This prayer is a reminder of the reality and a recognition of the reality that we are dependent on God to get us through all of life, beyond the confines of prayer. We are in need of unity with God. We need strength with God. We need God's character to guide us in every part of our lives. And so whenever we leave our prayer, we leave with a longing that God would continue to guide us in everything we do. It's a central way of finishing off the Lord's prayer. And so in each of these final statements, we're praying that God would sustain us, that our loving Father would provide our needed sustenance and lead us to others, that he would forgive us so that we can forgive others, and that we would walk with him in every moment of our lives. And the more you pray for this sustenance, the more, again, you realize you need it. It's funny, the more you pray, the more you're going to want to pray. Just how it works. The more you pray, the more you need to be close to the presence of God. It's like falling in love with someone. The more you get close to that person, the more you're like, I need to get closer and closer and closer. That's what prayer does for us. That's how it transforms us. That's the fourth thing here. All of these factors come together and make clear utter, a prayer utterly transforming. It changes how we see God, it changes how we see ourselves, and how we live and move in the world. And I don't mean transforming in some kind of highfalutin spiritual sense. I don't mean it as up in the air. It actually changes us. It changes our brains. There's a recent book written, How God Changes Our Brains. This was written by an agnostic neuroscientist, not a believer in any particular faith. His name's Andrew Newberg. And he said that study after study shows that prayer strengthens the part of our brains that cultivate empathy and love. You become more like Jesus just by praying. Prayer prevents our brains from getting stagnant. A lot of us think that eventually our brains kind of get hard and molded. That's actually a fallacy. It's not true. Your brain is always able to grow and be nimble. Prayer helps us remember that our brains can be nimble. It helps shape us and allow us to be flexible and responsive to the world around us. And prayer enables us to clearly identify our priorities and then shape our behavior. We do that better when we pray. Guys, I can say this from personal experience. I've been praying the Lord's Prayer every day for the last year. It's a new practice that I've built into my life. I'm by no means the master of it. But I can tell you it's transforming me. I can tell you that it makes me think about others more. I can tell you that it makes me less anxious. I can tell you that it has shaped how I treat my wife and how I treat my neighbors and how I live and move in the world around me. 
It transforms us. And so that's why in our curriculum that we've created for this sermon series, The Transform Life, we've actually created a walkthrough of the Lord's Prayer that you can use. You can customize it. And so you can find this on our website. Just go to midtownpres.org, click on The Transform Life, and click on Prayer, and you'll see the curriculum with this and a variety of other prayer structures. And so you can look that up on the website. Also, if you're not connected to a community group, let me know. Because the best way to do this is to do it alongside other people as they practice it and see with one another, hey, how's this changing you? How's this shaping you in some way? And so our groups are going to go through it. You're welcome to join a group and go through it with them as well. And our hope is that as we emphasize this practice together as a community, that we would become people who are oriented towards God all the time, who are involved in the world around us, who are sustained by that God, and then who are transformed by that God. Because if that truly happens, if everyone in this room commits to that and really gets changed and really starts to look more and more like Jesus every day, it will transform the world around us. It'll change things. We know that that's true. It's happened for thousands of years. It's happened all over these pages. We can be that sort of community, friends. When we pray, it makes a difference in us and the world around us. When we pray, we sign up for the revolution of God. So let's pray.